Today we are continuing our series on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So far we've considered love, joy, and peace, an element of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which we are thinking about today is patience. I suspect all of us are learning something about patience during lockdown. Many of us will be discovering that we're not very patient at all, even if we thought before that we were. Many folks like me will be waiting patiently, or maybe not so patiently, for hairdressers to reopen. And in my case, I might have to change my middle name to Yeti if they don't open for a while yet. A DIY haircut is not an option unless the Van Gogh look appealed to me, which it doesn't. On the other hand, you will have no doubt in waiting patiently for this time next month when the nights will begin to draw in again. Cue mass hysteria. Let's for a moment think a bit more about the various Bible translations and paraphrases relating to Galatians 5, 22 to 23 in particular. Patient is the most common translation of the original Greek word makrothumia, but there are others, such as forbearance, long-suffering, great-heartedness, a willing to stick with things, ready to put up with anything. Barclay notes, generally speaking, the word is used of patience not in relation to things or events, but in relation to people. There are other examples of this in some of Paul's other letters. In Romans 2.4, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Or Romans 9.22, What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us. In 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, Paul writes, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And Paul writes to the church in Colossae, Colossians 3, 12 to 14, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, 
and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Various commentators suggest definitions of the patience which the Holy Spirit grows in us, in the church, and enables us to become more and more like Jesus, who is the light of the world. Such as, patience is willingness to endure irritation or the ability to put up with exasperating or annoying behavior in others. Or, this is the spirit which never loses its patience with others. Their foolishness and their unteachability never drive it to cynicism or despair. Their insults and their ill-treatment never drive it to bitterness or wrath. And patience is long-suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute. John Stott describes the nine elements, features of the fruit of the Spirit, of Holy Spirit, as a cluster of nine Christian graces, which seem to portray a Christian's attitude to God, to other people, and to ourselves. God's grace, like His holiness, is absolutely fundamental to who He is and what He has done for us through Christ. The early church, as in the church today, wasn't made up of perfect carbon copies of Jesus, and therefore at times God's grace and holiness weren't clearly reflected and shared in their dealings with one another. Earlier in Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Similarly, in chapter 5, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Perhaps today, the use of the word flesh is perhaps too readily associated with sexual gratification and inappropriate sexual relationships, but it's much more than that. It is perhaps more helpful to substitute the word self. In other words, when you indulge the flesh, you're putting yourself first above God and above other people. Your priorities in life are primarily focused on what you want, what will benefit you, or at what, what at least you think will benefit you. Therefore, the type of jockeying for position and status and infighting, which was clearly a feature of the church in Galatia, is the inevitable result when folks adopt a me-first attitude. In turn, the church is likely to degenerate to become a pretty poor reflection of Jesus, 
with his light barely flickering, making it much more difficult for others, particularly those who don't already know him as their Savior, to see him, hear him, meet him, receive him, and ultimately follow him. In Luke chapter 9, we read about a couple of incidents which reflect this selfish attitude and indeed a lack of grace and patience on the part of Jesus' disciples. The disciples begin arguing about, with each other about which of them would be the greatest, which of them would be the top dog next to Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, brothers James and John's mother puts a word in for her sons, which is the precursor for the argument among the disciples. Jesus then takes a child who had no status whatsoever in that society and assures them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Clearly, the penny hasn't dropped, particularly with James and John. John then tells Jesus, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Jesus tells them, whoever is not against you is for you. Again, notice for John, he is still concerned about his status as a disciple, as one of the gang of twelve, a senior disciple. Yet the unnamed guy is ministering in Jesus' name. So is a disciple of Jesus. Again, grace and patience are in short supply. Jesus and his disciples continue on their journey to Jerusalem via a Samaritan village. The hatred between Jews and Samaritans was legendary, which is why when Jesus urged us to love our neighbors as ourselves and was asked, who is my neighbor? His reply in terms of a parable about a good Samaritan was so shocking and challenging to his largely Jewish audience. The residents of this particular Samaritan village didn't extend a warm welcome to Jesus and his disciples. For James and John, they lose patience completely. Grace goes out the window and they unhelpfully ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Charming. Jesus rebukes them, and they continue on their journey to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9 closes with various folks along the road who toy with following Jesus. But each of them thinks of other priorities which need to be attended to before they can begin to follow Jesus. In other words, they're not ready to put Jesus first, 
to commit their lives to him. And Jesus concludes, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's turn to Luke 15, 11 to 31, and the variously named parable of the prodigal son or parable of the lost son, and much less commonly, the parable of the loving father and the parable of the running father. On so many levels, this parable packs plenty punches in terms of seriously challenging how we live our lives, both in relation to God and other people, not least in relation to our church family. The culture of the time and many of Jesus' original audience, not least the Pharisees, would find this parable frankly unbelievable and too scandalous for words. Our familiarity with the parable can mean we are in danger of missing how powerful Jesus' telling of this parable is. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. These two opening verses are not incidental scene-setting. They are explosive. Irrespective of the fact that the younger brother then goes to a distant country on a spending spree, blows his inheritance, and ends up in the gutter, a Jew reduced to, reduced to feeding pigs is definitely in the gutter, the very fact that he has the audacity, the cheek, to ask for his share while his father is still alive would bring tremendous shame on the family, particularly his father. He's saying, I'm not hanging around until you pop your clogs. I want to go on with my life and I want you to pay for it. Then when things go belly up, he's got the brass neck to crawl back home to his father to clear up his mess and rescue him from his self-imposed squalor and exile. Tom Wright comments, to this day, there are people in traditional cultures like that of Jesus' day who find the story at this point quite incredible. Fathers just don't behave like that. He should, they think, have beaten him or thrown him out. There is a depth of mystery already built into the story before the son even leaves home. Again, in modern Western culture, children routinely leave homes in the country to pursue their future and their fortune in big cities or even abroad. But in Jesus' culture, this would likewise be seen as shameful, with the younger son abandoning his obligation to care for his father in old age. But of course, the most remarkable character in the story is the father himself. One might even call this the parable of the running father. In a culture where senior figures were seen as far too dignified to run anywhere, this man 
takes to his heels as soon as he sees his young son dragging himself home. His lavish welcome is, of course, the point of the story. Jesus is explaining why there is a party, why it's something to celebrate when people turn from going their own way and begin to go God's way. The Father's patience, forbearance, great-heartedness towards his younger son flies in the face of what his shameful behavior deserves. Someone needs to remind the Father that such undignified behavior and lavish leniency towards his son is unbecoming and socially embarrassing. I mean, what will the neighbors think? Think of the family name being dragged through the mud. Enter eldest son. The homecoming party is in full swing when dutiful, diligent, respectable, party pooper big brother comes back up the drive from the fields for his tea. He realizes there's a rave-up going on down on the ranch. He asks one of the servants what's going on. Your brother's come home, and your dad's throwing a homecoming party because he's over the moon to see him back again. Back home again. He could have been dead for all he knew. Actually, it's, it's a big party. It's not just a few happy meals from McDonald's. He's bought the shop. He's cleared them out. Hey, there's plenty for everyone. Your tea's going to be a biggie tonight. He's done what? He's celebrating what? Are you having a laugh? He's lost it. I'm having nothing to do with that. All patience, forbearance, any thought of forgiveness are showing grace towards his brother evaporates. He refuses to go into the party. So his father comes out to persuade him to join them. He's not budging. He talks up his obedience, his loyalty, his hard work. In fact, his slaving for his father for years. As far as he's concerned, he's more than earned, at the very least, a happy meal. But oh no, you wait until this son of yours, he's no brother of mine, this waster who spent all your money on prostitutes, funny, nobody's mentioned that before, comes crawling back home and you roll out the red carpet as if he was a prince returning to his palace. His father doesn't, as he could have done, point out to him that with his self-centered, self-righteous, bad-tempered complaints, he's not showing a whole lot more respect for his father than his younger brother had. He patiently, gently, 
reassures him and reminds him that his place in the family as a valued and loved son was never in doubt and never required to be earned. My son, my son, you are always with me, and all I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus ends this parable here. Everything isn't neatly tied up. Did the brothers reconcile? Tom Wright again. We are supposed to think it through, to ask ourselves where we fit within the story, and to learn more about ourselves and our churches as a result. Which role in the story do you and your church find comes most naturally to you? How can we move towards becoming people through whom resurrection happens to others? How can we celebrate the party of God's love in such a way as to welcome not only the younger brothers who have come back from the dead, but also the older brothers who thought there was nothing wrong with them? During lockdown, We've all been affected in some way. We've all had a lot to think about. Many of you, like me, will have had a good clear out at home. And during the clear out, I came across a wee book written by Selwyn Hughes entitled Getting the Best from the Bible. It's a six-week study on biblical meditation, which I'd completed in 2010. And so it seemed like a good time for a refresher course. So a fortnight ago, I began the course again. And the memory verse for last week was Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Hughes comments, God wants us to change to change us, to be more and more like Jesus. And meditation is a key part of this process. Every thought needs to be brought into line with God's thoughts. We do this through continual and persistent biblical meditation, getting to know his thoughts, principles, and purposes. Paul urges the folks in Galatia, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Out of step with the Holy Spirit, our efforts to be like Jesus are like the older brother likely to be a grim, frustrating, sour, bitter, joyless, fruitless affair. But the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's finish and let's use a prayer which Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And may this be a prayer for all of us. I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of God, the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.